This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. This is our year in review show. Remember 2017? Trump Watch starts right now. The most remarkable political year was Alabama's. It began with the state's senator, Jeff Sessions, becoming attorney general and ended with a Democrat, Doug Jones, winning the election for Jeff Sessions' seat, the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama since 1990, 27 years ago. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Howell Reigns. But first, the hashtag MeToo movement. For many months, we had first-person reports about sexual harassment from Bill O'Reilly to Roy Moore and including Al Franken. We turn to Katha Pollitt. And, of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Just to go back over where we have been in 2017, Fox News fired Bill O'Reilly for sexual harassment in April— The Harvey Weinstein story ran in the New York Times at the beginning of October. The MeToo hashtag appeared early in October. MeToo started with Tarana Burke and was popularized by Alyssa Milano. The story about Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore taking a 14-year-old girl to his mountain cabin ran on November 9th. And then Al Franken resigned on December 7th. How did we get from Bill O'Reilly and Harvey Weinstein and Roy Moore to Al Franken? Life comes at you fast, John. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite amazing, isn't it? The whole Me Too movement has really exploded. Um, And I think that, you know, we have to chalk it up to the rage that women feel over the pussy grabber in the White House. Yes. Um, It's just outrageous. Um, Every day uh, you have to listen to this misogynist nutcase, utterly unqualified, who does one terrible thing after another with regard to women's rights and health, um, not to mention all the other things he's doing. And, you know, the most qualified candidate in American history was a woman and is not in the White House. And I, I really think that whether or not, like, a woman herself was for Hillary, that is a really deep insult. And I think that it woke a lot of women up to, you know, we're always being told we've come so far, you've come a long way, baby. Things are so much better. Think how bad things are in Saudi Arabia. Think what it was like yes. when you're in your grandmother's day. And people, I think, realize, uh, women are realizing, well, things aren't so great. You know, yeah, it's better than Saudi Arabia. It's better than 50 years ago, but it's not good enough. I think you're absolutely right. If, you, if we ask, why did all this happen this year? It's because of Trump. But the, the targets, and this is where it starts getting uh, complicated, ended up 
taking down Al Franken, the probably the single most important person to lose his position as a result of accusations of sexual misconduct. And I'm sure you agree that the accusations against him were nothing like the accusations against Bill O'Reilly or Harvey Weinstein or Roy Moore. I do think they were much milder, although I'm not supposed to say that, um, because uh, one of the things that people are saying now is that you can't, you can't quantify, you can't qualify, you can't rank sexual harassment. But I think kind of you have to do that. Just the way that you can say, yeah, stealing $100, embezzling $100 is embezzlement, but it's a different kind of thing than embezzling $100,000. <laughs> um, so um, I guess, you know, I, I don't agree with some of the people who've been saying that it's all on a level. I think there are ways in which it's all on a level. It's all part of the same, what's been called rape culture. It's all part of the idea that women's bodies are, you know, just a nice big juicy steak for men and that women can be demeaned at any moment. But I do think that a photo op butt grabbing is a different thing than Harvey Weinstein saying to Selma Hayek, I could have you killed and yes. mean it. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that said, you know, a lot of people do feel that Al Franken was kind of hustled off the stage too quickly. And I'm of two minds about that. He was hustled off the stage rather quick, quickly. But I think it's politics, you know. It's not like he was uh, a tenured professor who would have to go through, you know, there would have to be a million uh, meetings and hearings and testimony. He's, a, he's an elected official. He lost the confidence of his fellow Democrats. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. And he was kind of, you know, didn't really have much of an alternative. There is the Senate Ethics Committee. They could hold hearings. They could take testimony from his accusers. They could have his uh, response to his accusers. Wouldn't that be a kind of uh, due process? Well, I suppose in a way it would be, but here's how it would go. Al Franken groped my butt at a photo op. Mm, I'm not sure I remember it that quite like that. I mean, there is no evidence. There's her the, the word of how, six women, however many it is. And then there's, then there's him. And so then what would the ethics committee say? Well, they all say you did this. So I, I don't think there's a lot of fact-finding to be done. But anyway, if that's what he wanted, he should have said, I'm not resigning. I want to go before, uh, to, to have there be a real investigation. And um, I know you Democrats are all mad at me and want me to go away so that you can be the party that, is tough on sexual harassment and make the Republicans be the party that is not, but I'm not going. He could have said that. Fair enough. So why didn't he? Fair enough. And the other thing we're interested in when we talk about where Me Too has been for the last year and where it might be going, it has remained pretty much focused on the elites of the media, uh, of politics, uh, of journalism, and of course, we believe that most of the victims, the overwhelming number of victims of sexual harassment are in working class jobs. They work in restaurants or they work in sweatshops and 
their bosses are probably not as grotesque as Roy Moore or Harvey Weinstein, but their bosses either demand sex for hiring or for promotions or treat them uh, badly if they don't cooperate. And we know very little about this. And in fact, the New York Times on December 19th kind of opened the door to this with a story about the culture of harassment at a Ford, at Ford factories uh, in Chicago. I think you looked at this piece. I did. It was an amazing piece of journalism. And if you read it on the web, it has uh, little videos of some of the women talking about what happened to them that are very affecting. Um, and so, but what was, in, was among the things that was interesting to me is that these are very, very good working class jobs working in the Ford factory. Yeah. They have a very strong union, one of the few strong unions remaining in our are sad country, um, and they have a lot of things in place that should have made a difference and did not. Um, the union played a very ambiguous role, and you know, in my piece, I, I mention unions as part of a you know a way of dealing with sexual harassment. But you know, the union guy can just be another sexual harasser. Um, the union guy can take the side of the men. Um, and think, why should, why should this guy who's been here for 20 years be fired because, you know, he made some off-color remark to a woman who, you know, he, might, he the union guy, might not feel so keen about anyway, having and, women in this men's job. And union reps see their job, and the job that they do is defending union members from being fired. Well, that's it. So there's a kind of... Um, uh, a conflict of interest a little bit built into it. Yeah. Um, and then behind it, I thought was also very interesting was the fear that everybody had that Ford would just close the factory. They'd say, you know, well, we've had it with you people and your gropings and your bringing lawsuits and all like that. Well, this is it. And that, you know, that, that the, the manufacturing is so endangered that, that people, I think, are, are, don't want to provoke their boss. At least that's what this article said. So um, it was a wonderful article. And, it, you know, there have been some others, too. There has been, you know, the restaurant business, for yeah. example, has been a big, a, a big locus of sexual harassment. And the whole tipping culture is part of that. Um, and then hotels. That was, it was very interesting. I saw something that said that 49% of women who who are the housekeepers, the, the women who clean the rooms, have been greeted at the door by a naked man. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Here's the thing. I mean, who knew that, you know, regular normal men, not some guy in the park in a raincoat, regular normal men, <laughs> as normal as men can be, <laughs> apparently, um, enjoy flashing their penises at women. I mean, it's just, it's been such an education, the whole Me Too moment. And, and it, really, it really makes you wonder what people are like behind their, their formal mask of everyday business life. Well, how about more women in executive and managerial positions? The Nation has a woman as editor and publisher, Katrina Vanden Heuvel. The Nation Institute has a woman CEO, Taya Kitman. These are both places where women are not harassed at work. Right. Um, and uh, the Nation Institute got Taya after having to let a sexual, sexual harasser go 
Hamilton Fish, who then went on and got another job where he sexually harassed people at the New Republic. So I, th- I definitely am in favor of more women in positions of power. This is a kind of controversial thing to say, because then you sound like you're just a sort of businessy feminist. You're for lean in. You know, you're not a good communist, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but uh, and, and somehow socialism is to kind of magically make this all go away, which is ridiculous. Just go to a socialist country. There's plenty of sexual harassment there. But I think that it's essential that women, if women have half the power, half the social power in this country, it, it will be a, a diff, very different place. Right now, they only have about 10% of the social power. Katha Pollitt, you could read her piece on the hashtag MeToo year in review at thenation.com. Katha, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The most remarkable political year was Alabama's. It began with the state senator Jeff Sessions becoming attorney general, and it ended with a Democrat, Doug Jones, winning the election for Jeff Sessions' seat the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama since 1990, 27 years ago. For comment, we turn once again to Howell Raines. He's the legendary Alabama journalist and former executive editor of the New York Times. He also wrote an unforgettable oral history of the civil rights movement. It's called My Soul is Rested. Howell Raines, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, the political year in Alabama began, you will recall, long before Roy Moore was in the headlines, when Senator Jeff Sessions was sworn in as attorney general after Trump was inaugurated on January 20th. Jeff Sessions had been the first senator to endorse Trump for a long time. He was the only one. And he was regarded by people like me as a kind of an outlier, even in the Republican Party, kind of a irrelevant in the Senate. Is that fair? Who was Jeff Sessions before he became Attorney General? Yes, that that is fair. Jeff Sessions is a classic Alabama senator in the sense that he does nothing. And that is what is wanted by his constituency. And it's a it's a peculiar kind of political vacuum. In the New Deal, Alabama Senators John Sparkman and Lister Hill were very active in drafting health care and social welfare legislation, including the Hill-Burton Act that built rural hospitals nationwide. They were activists on everything except race, and they simply tried to ignore civil rights to the degree possible. But their legislative careers were distinguished. The National Defense Education Act, for example, was one of their creations, and it has funded, provided federal funds to uh, universities all over the country for the last uh, 50 years. Yeah. With the rise of uh, Reagan, really, in 1980, Reagan's victory solidified the foundation that Barry Goldwater had put down in 1964 when five Alabama congressmen rode his coattails to, to the U.S. House. 
So Sessions comes along in that tradition of being innocuous yeah. and uh, saying the right thing ceremonially, making sure that Alabama gets its fair share or more than its fair share of federal uh, spending on military bases and such, but a very innocuous figure and almost comical uh, in some ways. But he was, by all accounts, posters say, the most popular statewide figure in, the, uh, in Alabama, the most popular politician in Alabama. He did a signal service to Trump in 2016 when Trump was uh, just uh, one of the pack he told Trump, come down here and uh, I'll, I'll help you in the primary, which he carried, and then come to Mobile and we will have a very splashy public event. And that was that event that really launched Trump to the front of the very crowded Republican field. A lot of people were surprised when Sessions took the AG's job because, I mean, he's senator, he was senator for life. And he had been Alabama Attorney General earlier in his career, so I suppose it was irresistible for him. And also, he wanted to reverse Justice Department policy on a wide range of issues, particularly bringing in harsher penalties for drug offenses and rolling back the Justice Department Civil Rights Division uh, and its uh, enforcement of uh, voting uh, rights legislation. So he was a radical intended to be a radical, retrogressive attorney general. And, of course, then when he got crossways with Trump, that was an astonishing event in that he actually did the right thing uh, (laughs) by recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Since then, Trump has just pummeling him constantly, and yet he remains very popular in Alabama. And I think it's possible he may uh, run for the Senate again down here. So Jeff Sessions becomes attorney general. The governor appoints a replacement, a man named Luther Strange, soon to be forgotten. Um, Special election was called. And then in April of 2017, Roy Moore, who had been suspended from the Alabama Supreme Court since the previous September, said he would resign as chief justice in order to run for this Senate seat, which had been vacated by Jeff Sessions and now had Luther Strange as the incumbent. Trump endorsed Luther Strange. Who was Roy Moore at that point before the sex uh, charges came out? And what did you make of Trump endorsing Luther Strange instead of Roy Moore? Well, it's uh, it's it's a convoluted tale, again, uniquely Alabamian in the clumsiness of its plotting. (laughs) And let's go back uh, to uh, Luther Strange for a moment. Luther Strange was the attorney general who canceled an investigation into the LoveGov, which is the name that was hung (laughs) on Governor Robert Bentley. He and a fellow member of his Baptist Church Board of Deacons, uh, a woman, had a flagrant affair, and then uh, he got caught uh, misusing state funds. It was generally thought he was headed for prison. Luther Strange, as Attorney General, pulled the plug on the investigation, and miraculously, a 
few months later, Luther Strange is appointed to this vacancy by the uh, unprosecuted Governor Bentley. Uh huh. <laughs> and uh, even for Alabamians, uh, that was uh, too much to, to swallow. One of the interesting features of post Wallace Alabama is now that the Republicans have taken over Montgomery and they control the legislature and the governor's seat, they have proved to be even more adept at stealing and other forms of corruption than the Wallace crew was. Hmm. And so uh, the Speaker of the House, who's a Republican, that was recently convicted of uh, uh, on corruption charges. But the Alabama establishment, particularly Alabama Power Company, our leading utility, and the Birmingham Bar Association and the trial lawyers, wanted very badly for Luther Strange to be the senator. And their reasoning was, of course, that he would, one, do nothing to harm them, and two he would have time between his appointment and the election that we just had for people to forget how he got the, the job. Yeah. But as Alabama senior Senator Richard Shelby, who I interviewed last week said that appointment uh, was tainted from the start that left an opening for Roy Moore as a kind of folk hero candidate who does a, a kind of a Ronald Reagan cowboy imitation to overturn the uh, the wishes of the Republican establishment. So in that sense, it was, uh, it was a comeuppance election uh, in which the populist Republicans defeated the candidate of the elite uh, Republicans. And, and obviously that set the stage for Roy Moore and Doug Jones' Senate race. Another element of the Luther Strange story that redounded to Moore's benefit was that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump both publicly endorsed Luther Strange and gave him tremendous amounts of money that Mitch McConnell's political apparatus did. And when Trump found out how bad a candidate he was, he was furious. And again, a richly comical scene, he visits Huntsville, Alabama, to endorse Big Luther Strange, which he did, and then he inserted into his speech, maybe I'm backing the wrong guy. Oh, <laughs> it was a Trumpian aside of, of, a, uh, of a familiar sort. But anyway, uh, Big Luther was a terrible candidate. He's an innocuous, ambling sort of guy, six feet, eight inches tall. He lives in the wealthiest suburb in Alabama. And the NRA put him in a series of very unconvincing ads, TV commercials showing him waving a pistol, and in one ad putting a silencer on his pistol as if he's going to zap somebody in the dead of night without making a sound. And it was uh, totally uh, unconvincing. So in any event, Roy Roy Moore becomes a candidate, and in the election that uh, we just had, Doug Moore did a remarkable job of organizing Alabama. I think it's the best campaign in my lifetime, probably in Alabama, and that's not accepting George Wallace, who had the this kind of uh, rocket fuel of the race issue. There was no such issue in this campaign to help Doug Moore. He put together a beautiful nuts and bolts and high tech and broadcast campaign. All the parts fit together seamlessly, and the Republicans in the state 
of course, were shaken by the pedophile accusations lodged against Moore. And I think the Republican establishment in the state was queasy all along about Moore winning. And, of course, then we had the dramatic intervention of Senator Richard Shelby on December 10th, two days before the election, in which he said he would not personally vote for Roy Moore. So looking back now, it's a couple of weeks after Doug Jones defeated Roy Moore, what are people in Alabama thinking? What What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking two things. First, let's talk about what Alabama Republicans are thinking. Yeah, They are thinking this is an aberration and that when Doug Jones is up for re-election in 2020, they will reclaim that seat with a more civilized kind of candidate uh, than Roy Moore was. Uh, Moore is, is finished uh, from the standpoint of support in the Republican Party. I think they may be counting their chickens way too early because Moore, I mean, I'm sorry, Doug Jones has proved to be a very adept campaigner, and he found a demographic seam in the Alabama population in which suburbanites are gradually becoming more and more prominent in Alabama elections. And while they're mainly Republican, nonetheless, that is a progressive segment of the Republican Party. And remember that in Houston and Atlanta, for example, the suburbs were the drivers of a more dynamic, progressive kind of government. Yeah. That, I think, is what we may see uh, in Birmingham. That said, Jones will have to, I think, do a better job of getting white votes. He is 620,000 votes, uh, 56% were black. He had a better turnout than Obama, which is a tribute to really wonderful ground-level uh, organization. But he also got 275,000 white votes. And Republicans right now don't seem to understand that that is a formula that could dictate future elections in Alabama, getting the educated suburbs and a newly energized uh, black vote. Howell Reigns, the legendary Alabama newsman. It's been wonderful having you as our man in Alabama for the podcast. Thanks for doing our Alabama Politics Year in Review. Thanks, John. It's been a great year, and I've really enjoyed talking with you about it. That's it for today's Trump Watch. Today's show was recorded by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. Special thanks to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. I'm John Wiener. The Trump Watch podcast returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting.